Now, most of us, I think, know that living the Christian, the perfect Christian life is not so easy. And perhaps I ought to restate that a little bit. Feeling like we lived the perfect Christian life is not so, so easy. First of all, because we don't. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says that all come short of the glory of God. And so it doesn't matter to me what it is that you do best. Uh, it would be very hard for me to believe that what you do best, you do as well as God can do it. Therefore, you come short of it. And we all come short. And, and the beauty of that, I was going to say the problem with that, but it's really, it's, it's a beautiful thing. The thing is, we can recognize it. We sense it. We know that it is so. We do come short of the glory of God. And it's a blessing that we know it. Otherwise, what would go through our heads, right? And the second thing, uh, the second reason why this is so, is that the world's falsehood are, falsehoods, are inbred. We are cultured by the world to think as we do. And we don't know to what extent we are corrupted, but we are corrupted, by the way. We're so corrupted that everything that goes through us is defiled. And unless cleansed by the blood of Christ, it is of no value with God. And so this is the lot of humanity, and it is even so among true Christians. For this reason, we hear the word of God. This is Isaiah 55. We're looking at verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as, heaven, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And because this is so, he says to us in verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Yeah. So Dr. Sandoval said the other day, everything in the Bible seems to be upside down. Well, it seems to be upside down, but the real reason is because we are upside down, and it makes it appear like, like the Lord's way is upside down, but it isn't. We're the problem. We have the problem. Okay. Uh, let me give you some example. I'm talking about paradoxes this morning. You know what a paradox is, don't you? It's an apparent, an apparent contradiction. Yeah, first of all, in the world, victory is gained by struggle and fighting. In God's reality, victory is gained by what? Surrendering. Doesn't make any sense in this world. This is not how it's done in this world. In the world, wealth is gained by hoarding land and money and investments. But in God's reality, wealth is gained by giving. And so Luke chapter 6 verse 38 says, Give and it shall be given unto you. So much so that the Lord is going to open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing more than you can handle. Is it true? That's God's, that's God's way. But we are naturally covetous. And therefore, we hoard, we draw to ourselves, we want to amass more wealth. And the Lord says, you're going about it the wrong way. In the world, we fight for life. In God's reality, we preserve life by sacrificing it, Matthew 16, 25. How hard is that for human beings to learn? In God's reality, a fool is one who thinks himself wise. Do you know that there's no one wise in this world? Yeah, in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 2, it says, we know, we know nothing as we ought to know it. We are not wise, but there are people in this world that think they are. And what does God call them? 
fools. That's right. It goes on to say, well, I go on to say, the wise is one who knows himself to be a fool. Romans 1, verse 22, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18. People who think themselves righteous are not. There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. All our righteousnesses are filthy rags. Isn't that true? But do you know there are people in the world that think they are righteous? It's not healthy to think that way because it isn't true. That's why Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are they who feel their spiritual poverty, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That makes no sense to me. <laughs> it seems to me that God would say, Blessed are the spiritually rich, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But he doesn't say that. Do you know why? Because there aren't any... And so it is, blessed are they who feel their spiritual poverty, for then they lean upon the Lord and the gift of His righteousness. You notice in the same beatitude it says, blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Did you notice he didn't say, blessed are the righteous, for they, for, for theirs is, for they shall be filled? It doesn't say that. It says, blessed are they that hunger. Why do we hunger? For that which we already have. We don't have it. That's the problem. That's why we hunger. And that's why we are blessed if we do hunger. Blessed thing to understand these things. The world applauds the strong. The Bible says, when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 and 10. The world walks by sight and the world is blind. But the Christian walks by faith and sees the invisible. Isn't that true? It's the truth. But you can't see the invisible. It's invisible. <laughs> but we see it anyway, right? And so Moses saw the invisible, and he was able to refute Egypt. He didn't want anything to do with it. He didn't need to have anything to do with it because he could see the invisible. Ah, friends, I hope that you and I see the invisible. It's such a blessing to know reality if we ever get a hold of reality. In the world, elections, uh, election to office is the result of hard campaigning, promoting self, denigrating our opponents. In God's reality, we are elected to higher position when we are little in our own sight. 1 Samuel 15, verse 17. Yes, and when we esteem others greater than ourselves... It's always amazing to me when I watch these politicians say they're born again. Now, it doesn't happen quite as much these last, uh, the last election, but the elections before, almost everyone would proclaim they are born again. <laughs> and then they turn around and they denigrate their, their opponents and they call them all kinds of names and they, they knock them down. And what kind of born again is that? <laughs> it's not true. In the world, we find rest by putting off the yoke. But Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, and you shall find rest unto your souls. So there we go. The Bible is full of paradoxes. That's just the way it is. The last shall be first. That doesn't make sense. The first shall be last. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. So the truth is paradoxical. And friends, if we have adopted the truth, if we have internalized the truth, what do you suppose people around us will see? They're going to see a paradox because that's what we become. It's like in this world uh, and like the rest of humanity, we live in the most dangerous place in the universe and yet we fear nothing. Why? Because Jesus said nothing shall by any means hurt you. doesn't make any sense, but it's true anyway. <laughs> that's Luke chapter 10 verse 19 and Romans 8 verse 28. All things work together for good. 
to them that love the Lord. In the book Desire of Ages, and I don't have a reference because I, I forgot my Bible in Kentucky, as I said the other day, but I know it by heart. It says, our lives will be like his, a series of uninterrupted victories. The problem with it is that it's not seen to be such here, but seen as such in the great hereafter. And so your life this morning, however it is, if you're a true Christian, your life is a series of uninterrupted victories, but you won't know it. And so if you're looking at your life and saying, man, I haven't accomplished anything, I'm an incompetent, I am useless, I'm not, I haven't figured this out, oh, I, can't, I can't succeed in anything, uh, you're not seeing the invisible. You may not see it, but let me tell you what. By faith, we know that it is true because Jesus said, our lives will be like his, a series of uninterrupted victories. Praise the Lord, right? Yes. Now, I got the um, impetus for this little talk this morning um, from a blog that my daughter wrote. So I'm going to read to you, if you don't mind, I'm going to read that little blog that she wrote a few years ago. I can't even tell you how many years ago. Uh, but anyway, here it is. Is it possible to be so discouraged and so encouraged at the same time? Now, that's paradoxical. Whether, whether it is a paradox or not, I, I haven't been able to determine. But here's the experience she's having. Discouraged, encouraged at the same time. Such opposed feelings, she writes. I'm not sure I am up to dealing with it. I'm not exactly sure what God is doing in my life, except that I did ask the Lord to deepen my faith, broaden my horizons, and make me of some use in His service several months ago. Life has been incredibly difficult ever since. I've been humbled and humbled and humbled again. Exactly the opposite of what I expected. I've wanted to run away from it all more times than I can count. I've dealt with depression, rejection, opposition, and fear, all piled one against the other, all spring and all summer long. I can't trust my decisions, my ideas, or my thoughts. In short, I'm a total basket case. I can only hope there's a bottom to this hole. And yet, I am encouraged because God can't do anything with me until I get to this place, according to the quote in Desire of Ages. Then she quotes Desire of Ages, page 300, which I quoted a lot. I used to be the Bible teacher at Fountain View Academy, and, I, and uh, it, this was pretty well my theme, this little paragraph. It was not a whole paragraph, actually, from uh, Desire of Ages, page 300. The Lord can do nothing towards the recovery of man. Have you ever heard that? The Lord can do nothing. Is there anything the Lord can't do? <laughs> but the Lord can do nothing towards the recovery of man until, and I would have written unless, convinced of his own weakness and stripped of all self-sufficiency, he yields himself to the control of God. Then he can receive the gift that God is waiting to bestow from the soul that feels his need. Nothing is withheld. And so when we feel our unrighteousness, when we feel our weakness, when we feel our sinfulness, when we feel our degradation, at that point we are in a position where we can reach up to God and that's exactly where He wants us to be. And in order to get us there, He has to work with us, right? There's a quotation in Testimonies to Ministers 456, and I'm sure you've heard it a thousand times. What is justification by faith? It is the work of God. Whose work? Yeah, none but God can subdue the pride of a man's heart, it says in the same, on the same page. 
And then God, it says God has to do two things. And the last of the two things is to do for a man what a man cannot do for himself. But in order to be able to do for the man what the man cannot do for himself, God has to lay our glory in the dust. That's the first thing. Yeah. Do you like, would you like to have that experience? Have you ever been there? Has the Lord ever had to lay your glory in the dust? Deep enough? <laughs> Strong enough? so that you find yourself without any hope anymore. Have you ever been there? Well, if you haven't been there, you will be there. It's coming. It has to come. Or else he can do nothing for our recovery. And he wants us to recover, right? That's the work of God. So, have you ever had the experience where everything goes contrary to your expectations? No answered prayers, no miracles, no, intervent no interventions, no communications, and you begin to wonder where in the world is God anyway. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 31. Simple story. I uh, talked a little bit about Jacob yesterday. We're going to talk some more about Jacob. In uh, Genesis chapter 31, Jacob has been away from home for 20 years. And you know the story, you know why he's away from home. Jacob, being such a nice guy, we saw, we, we, we saw that out of Patriarchs and Prophets yesterday. What a nice young man he was. No wonder he, he was his mother's favorite, right? And he, he was so nice, but still at the same time, he was not born again. And so he ended up cheating his brother by selling him uh, a bowl of porridge for a birthright. Now, there's no... I mean, the value of the birthright is not a bowl of porridge. And so it was really... He cheated him. And then, eventually, he ends up conniving with his mother to lie to his father and to steal the blessing from his brother. Well, his brother was so incensed. His brother was so so angry that he vowed that as soon as his father Isaac dies, he would kill his brother. Of course, then when Jacob heard these words, he was running away from home. And, and he was gone 20 years in Genesis chapter 31. Then one day, God comes to Jacob and says, okay, time to go home, go home. We see that in verse 3 in chapter 31. And the Lord said to Jacob, Return unto the land of your fathers, that's a command, and to thy kindred, and I will be with you. That's a promise. So here we have it, a direct command, reinforced by a promise. And so, because Jacob is a believer, he, what does he do? Well, he obeys the command and he trusts in the promise. Wonderful thing, because God has promised and his promises are unfailing. By the way, are, do you believe that? Amen. Yeah? Do you ever lean on the Lord? Yeah. Uh -huh. You know, I have the experience of feeling unworthy. I, I, I'm sure that's not, I'm not the only one, right? <laughs> there must be somebody else in this room that feels unworthy. But for the life of me, I can never find a time when I feel worthy. Undeserving is who I am. And I know it because I have a history and because I have a, a nature that fights the Lord. And I understand that and I feel unworthy. But do you know that at the same time, the Bible says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men. Yes, he gives to all men. 
Not asking for, not looking for fault, not asking any questions. That's the promise. That's for any man. If there's any person in the world that wants to do what, do anything God's way, God is right there to say, okay, if you want to do it my way, here's how it's done and I'll give you the power to do it. And I have the experience. It's an amazing thing. In Proverbs 3, verse 6, um, what's the word? In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path, right? What would happen if we acknowledged God in all our ways? Every time we have a decision to make, we would acknowledge God. What would he do? How many mistakes would you make? Do you ever make mistakes? Why do you suppose it is? It's because we haven't acknowledged God in the thing that we're having a decision to make. Do you ever do that? I do that. It's amazing. I can get up in the morning and promise the Lord that today I will acknowledge you every time I have a decision to make, every time somebody asks me a question, every time I have a new situation on my hands. But I get to the end of the day and I'm on my knees and I say, Lord, I'm sorry. I, you know, this question came on and I answered it. <laughs> right out of my heart. It might have been right, it might have been wrong, I don't know. But I did not acknowledge you in all my ways. That's humanity, isn't it? It's an amazing thing. And yet God is so faithful to his promise to me that every time I acknowledge him, he acknowledges me. And it's a blessing. It's a blessing. So we're in chapter 32 now. And we're looking at verse, verse 1. I want you to see this. It's, it's very interesting to me that God did that. Uh, Jacob went on his way and angels of God met him. So here we are. Not only does God command him to go home and give him a promise that everything will be fine if he goes home, then he sends an angel escort. Now, what is that going to do to Jacob's heart, do you think? I mean, it's reinforcing, isn't it? An amazing way. He's doing the right thing. Wonderfully reassuring. Verse 2. And Jacob saw them. He said, this is God's host, God's army. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. That's what he called it. And there he goes. But then, of course, the story goes on. We look at verse 3 to 5. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall ye speak unto my lord Esau. Thy servant Jacob saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. And I have oxen and asses and flocks and men servants and women servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find grace in thy sight. I am a wealthy man. I don't need anything from you. I'm not about to steal anything from you anymore. Everything is great. Show me some grace. This is what he's saying here. And, but the problem is, his, um, the scouts he sent ahead to talk to, to Esau come back, and Esau said nothing. He had no response to, to Jacob except the fact that he's coming, right? If you look at that verse 6, then you'll find it's a bit unnerving. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and also he comes to meet you with 400 men with him. Do you think Jacob understands what's going on? Yeah. What does he know? Well, in verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. So he divided the people that was with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two bands. Why the misgivings? Why the fear? 
Hadn't God commanded? Hadn't God promised? And with the command and with the promise and the angels besides as an escort, did he have anything to fear? Why in the world would he think that Esau could, could uh, override God's promise and God's command? I mean, there's no, there, there's no sense to even that. If he had any faith at all, he would say, well, let him come with two armies. Uh, I don't care what he comes with, even if he had a cannon with him. It doesn't matter to me because God is with me. But you see, there's something that comes into collision with this. Even though God has promised and God has commanded and the angels are there, all of this comes into collision with his sin. And that's what's happening to him. Esau's coming, and whose fault is it? It's his own fault. It's something he did in the past. And now he's not, he's not, I don't know, I'm saying this, he's not questioning God, he's not doubting God, he's, he's, he's not questioning the promise, but... I sinned. Have you ever had that problem? You know God exists. You know His word is true. You know His promise is as good to you as to anyone else. But I fell on my face again, again and again and again. And, and surely by now the Lord is sick of it and fed up with it. And will He answer my prayer this time? Well, this time is a really rough time for Jacob <laughs> because it's not just some little thing happening now and his brother is coming with 400 men. He has enjoyed God's favor for 20 years. Jacob heard God's command to return. Jacob heard God's promise that God would be with him. God sent an escort of angels, but all of that comes into collision with his sin and his present sinfulness. His present sense of unworthiness, his weak, human, sorry nature. You ever feel that way? Well, there's good news, and that's why I'm preaching this this morning. <laughs> I was telling Mike this morning, as we were going to breakfast together, how that my own sermon has encouraged me this morning. <laughs> Sometimes I'm happy with what the Lord does, even through me, right? Yeah. Um, okay, let's see where we are here. That's the battle that you and I are called to fight. Uh, and I, I assume I'm not the only one that fights this battle about myself. Okay, yeah. I can preach God's promises from the pulpit. I do all the time. And it's a wonderful thing. And when I preach God's promises, I believe them. <laughs> yeah. And I know that God will not fail us. He's promised not to fail us. And God cannot be seen as a liar, right? His, his reputation, his honor is staked on his word being true. He cannot fail his promise. Because if he does, then we can point to him and say, hey, you lied. And God can't afford that. And God doesn't need to afford that. God is God. He doesn't need to lie. He couldn't lie if he wanted to. Because every time he speaks, whatever he says happens. And so that's the way it is. His cross forgives all of my sins, even the ones I've yet to commit. His grace overrides all objections, and His grace overrides all obstacles. Beside that, I want to honor God, and I want to be blessed of God at the same time. But too often, these precious truths are eclipsed by a crushing reality. My sinfulness, my incompetence, my mistakes the size of the obstacles in my way, the smallness of my faith. So at this point, Jacob was convinced of his weakness, 
stripped of all self-sufficiency. His glory was laid in the dust. He had absolutely no more hope. He was toast unless God intervened. And that's the place where he came. Have you ever been there? Oh, yeah. I wish I had time. I don't have time to tell you a story that, that I've told it here before. Anyway, I, I understand some of you were not here. I don't have time to tell you, but I've been there is all I'm trying to say. <laughs> I've been to the point, as a matter of fact, I had a problem at one time that lasted something like three years. Three years. And, and the further it went, the closer to the edge of the cliff I came. And the Lord, it seems to me, never answers, never responds, never helps you until you get on the very edge and you're sticking over the cliff and you just haven't fallen over yet. And that's when he responds. And he did. And so I have the blessed experience of having gone through it. Is that important, that we go through it? Well, the point is, friends, that if we're ever going to go through Jacob's time of trouble then we had better experience some of it before we get to the great time of trouble, don't you think? Because if we haven't experienced it before, how in the world are we going to experience it at that time? So that's why these things happen to us. Go to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30. And we see the reference there to Jacob's time of trouble. Does anyone here not know what Jacob's time of trouble is? Can I see your hand? Is there anyone who doesn't know what that is? It seems like everybody does. Well, good. You're, you are Seventh-day Adventist. Verse 5. For thus saith the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now, and see whether a man does travail with child. Wherefore, do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. And friends, do you know that Jacob's time of trouble happens after the close of probation? Do you know that it happens when God's people are totally saved, the ones that are saved, and that they cannot be lost, and that they cannot fall, or they will not fall in any case, after, after that? that? They ought to know it, right? But the problem is, is we won't know it. God is not going to tell us and send, a, send us a text or anything like that and say, hey, the time, the, the, the time of probation is closing on a certain date. After that, you're safe. Doesn't matter what happens, you're safe. That would be wonderful if he did something like that, right? But he doesn't tell us. And so we cross the line and we don't know. And then Jacob comes to, or the Adventist church, or the people who are saved come to the Jacob's time of trouble. And here's what happens as far as I know. We're in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 202. Paragraph 1, paragraph 0 and 1. As he reviewed his life, he was driven almost to despair, talking about Jacob, of course. Now, why in the world was he reviewing his life? Why wasn't he just keeping his eyes on Jesus? Well, because, friends, he had no choice. He had no choice. The devil was there to remind him. And even if the devil had not been there to remind him, what do you think Jacob, I mean, Esau is coming with an army, what do you think that reminds him of? 
It's the thing he did. He just can't forget it. It's right there. And so some guy comes from behind, puts his hand on his shoulder with enough weight to think that he's a big guy, right? And he begins to wrestle thinking it's an enemy. And the thing that comes to his head, it's my fault. It's my fault. I did that to myself. And look at my family. All my wives, it's too bad he had so many. But anyway, all of my wives and all my children and all my flocks and all my servants and all the rest, and they are all going to suffer because of what I did. He had no choice but to know. The quotation goes on to say, such will be the experience of God's people in their final struggle with the powers of evil. God will test their faith. Their faith will be what? Tested. Yeah, to see whether their faith is real. Well, let me tell you what. How much faith is it going to take when this is the thing that happens to us at that time if we have never been tested in the same way before that time? It's very hard. There isn't hardly anything in this world that we do really well the first time we do it. I've always said that failure is, um, that success is on the far side of failure. Do you know success is on the far side of failure? It is. Did you learn to walk the first time you tried? Did you learn to ride a bike the first time you tried? Did you learn to swim the first time you jumped into the water? Is there anything that you did the first time that you did it well? There isn't anything. That's how it is in this world. So God can't wait until we face Jacob's time of trouble if we have never faced it before. Do you see what I'm trying to say? That's why, and you can begin to understand why it is that we face the things we face or how it is we feel about ourselves when our eyes are open to see what we're like at the core of our being. In um, talking about Jacob, this is great controversy, page 617, paragraph zero. The crisis of his life has come. Everything is at stake. Everything is at stake. He can sink at this point, because for him it was not after the close of probation. <laughs> so he, he could just give up in despair at this point, or he could fight the great fight of faith. Right Now, of us, speaking in great controversy, the next page, 618, it says, As Satan accuses the people of God on account of their sins, the Lord permits him to try them to the uttermost. As they review the past, their hopes sink, for in their lives they can see little good. They are fully conscious of their weakness and unworthiness. When you look at your life, what do you see? How much do you think you have accomplished? I mean, you know, I can't judge you by me, but that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't have any other way to judge, it seems like. And if I have to look at my own life, I have been in the Lord's work for 45 years. You think I can point to anything and say, man, that was a great success. That was, oh, I did a great thing there. <laughs> no, no, it's enough to become humble. Uh, if you live like me, if you are me, yeah. So why do we have to go through it today? Because we're going to go through it tomorrow. That's what we face. Our only hope of preparation for tomorrow is to have a practice in it today. Great controversy still, 621. I'm on, yeah, I'm on the last page. The assaults of Satan are fierce and determined. His delusions are terrible. But the Lord's eye is upon his people, and his ear listens to their cries. 
Their affliction is great. The flames of the furnace seem about to consume them, but the refiner will bring them forth as gold tried in the fire. God's love for his children during the period of their severest trial is as strong and tender as in the days of their sunniest prosperity. But it is needful for them to be placed in the furnace of fire. Their earthliness must be consumed. Now this is the 144,000 when they cannot be lost. And what is it that needs to be consumed? Their earthliness needs to be consumed that the image of Christ may be perfectly reflected. Jacob prevailed because he was persevering and determined. His victory is an evidence of the power of importunate prayer. All who will lay hold of God's promises as he did and be as earnest and persevering as he was will succeed as he succeeded. Those who are unwilling to deny themselves by agonizing before God to pray long and earnestly for his blessing will not obtain it. So here we go. Have you ever cried unto the Lord, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever wrestled with God thinking it was an enemy? Have you ever despaired of seeing things righted in your lives? Ah, friends, listen. Is the gospel true? Do you know what the gospel is? In Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, and, and I'm going to paraphrase it. Uh, I mean, I've got the Bible here, but I want to paraphrase it. <laughs> Romans 1 the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is. That is, he is de going to define the gospel, right? I am not afraid of the, ashamed of the gospel because it is the power inherent in God to save them that believe. Jew first and Greek also, right? That's the gospel. It's the power that God has. Does God have enough power to save you? Has God promised to save you? Can you hold on to this promise? But what if your life tells you something different? Is God dead because you are? No. Is God weak because you are? Is God tired because you're tired? Is God sick because you're sick? No. God is there and he can do anything with nothing. Therefore, whatever's left of you, he can still do something. Right. And then in verse 17, it says, For therein, that is in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed, that is the gift of his own righteousness to his people. And we can have it from faith to greater faith. And then it says the just, that's the Latin derivative of the word righteous, Anglo-Saxon word, the righteous shall live righteous lives by faith. By faith in what? In the power inherent in God to save. Do you have it? Do you believe the gospel? It's an amazing thing. But we have a God in heaven who is so powerful, he cannot fail. And when he promises to save his people to the uttermost, he can do it. And the work he has begun in us, he'll finish it. He's promised to do it if we don't get discouraged and turn away from him. It's very encouraging, isn't it? Well, it is to me anyway. Anybody here would like to tell God you're with him? Oh, yes. We're going to the kingdom. May you all, may we all be there. Shall we stand and pray? Heavenly Father, Lord, we appreciate the gospel. Sometimes we get a glimpse of it. Sometimes we get a glimpse of ourselves. And we just want to ask that you would help us to keep our eyes on Jesus and his promise and his power and his wisdom, and everything requisite to save our souls. Lord, we cannot save ourselves. We need you, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.